Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Rob Wolf, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Science fiction obviously excels in incorporating technology and all kinds of imagined innovations into its storytelling. When it comes to working with nature, however, stories lately seem to focus on environmental degradation, which some call the cli-fi or climate fiction genre. Today I'm speaking with Jane Linskold, who has just released her second book in a series that focuses on a natural paradise, the planet Artemis, which allows her to describe not only nature in its pristine state, but also create intriguing characters out of animals. In addition to writing the Artemis series, which consists of Artemis Awakening and the newly released Artemis Invaded, Ms. Linskold is the award-winning, best-selling author of over 25 novels, including the six-volume Firekeeper Saga. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, very glad to be here. Thank you. Let me ask you, how does someone find time to write 25 novels? Um, Putting in time every day. Uh, I wrote my first four novels when I had a full-time job teaching college, and... uh, it just meant making time for it, making it a priority. And had you always hoped and planned to become a writer from a very young age? Absolutely not. Uh, I'm not one of those people who uh, who was making my parents write down stories for me while I dictated them or anything like that. I didn't even really think about fiction writing as a potential side career until I was in college and found myself doing a lot of writing. However, I've always been a storyteller, which is different. I'm the eldest of four, and that gave me a captive audience for any number of wild flights of fancy and made-up stories. One of my great good fortunes is that my youngest sister is eight years younger than I am, so right about the age when... The two siblings who are closer in age to me were getting tired of that sort of thing. I had a, another person who was very happy to play pretend, and I just consider my writing of novels an extension of that long-time interest. Well, so tell me how you got started. Uh, was it, was, did, you, did you just write a novel, or were you writing short stories first? I wrote both. I wrote a short story. I wrote... It's so hard to put it because people think they're writing novels when they're writing something that's actually much shorter than what the market considers a novel. But when I was in graduate school on the side, I was writing something that I thought of as a novel that I think would have been a little short by market considerations. When I finished graduate school, I began to seriously address trying to write publishable fiction. And I started with short stories because at that time, that's what you did. You wrote short stories, and they gave you a track record, and then you went looking for an agent and a publisher for longer works. These days, things have changed, but that's how it was done then, 
that's pretty much what I did. And did you start with um, the science fiction genre? Oh, yes. I've always loved science fiction and fantasy. It's the way my brain works. People always say, but why do you write that stuff? And it's like, why wouldn't I? That's the stuff, that's what interests me. I'm much more interested in speculating and worlds with unreal components than I am retelling what I can see out my front window. After all, I can always include what I see out my front window in something that is a more made-up setting. Well, so take me into the world of Artemis. Um, that's the name of a planet that, in your in your story, which starts with uh, first book, Artemis Awakening, um, it's the name of a planet created as a vacation world by a civilization that was destroyed hundreds of years before the beginning of the first book. Um, but maybe you could just tell me a little bit more about how how you tell me about the the planet and your idea for this story. Okay, basically. I liked science fiction as a reader for worlds that were interesting, worlds that were creative, worlds that invoked a desire in me to go somewhere and see something and do something. And while this may be unfair to what's out there, I'm not saying I've read everything, with a very few exceptions, on the whole, science fiction seemed to me to be getting too focused on being moral allegory and cautionary tales. And I thought it was completely possible to tell a story without lecturing people and figuring that people along the way would take away what messages they needed out of the work. I didn't need to lecture them about climate problems or whatever. Uh, I think readers are a whole lot smarter than either publishers or uh, a lot of writers think. So I wanted to put together an exotic and interesting world and let people go adventuring on it with me. And if along the way they figured out that ecosystems don't work if uh, they're exploited, great. But I'm not going to write lectures. So Artemis was put together to be an ideal hunting, shooting, sporting, sailing skiing place for a very, very high technological society that realized that if you don't push yourself on the limit of uh, non-technological intervention, you've lost something. And uh, that's at least the overt reason for Artemis being created. In Artemis Invaded in particular, I think the reader gets a fairly strong hint that Artemis was also a cover for something a bit darker. Right, definitely. Now, full disclosure, I have read the second book, Artemis Invaded, and I know from that that the civilization that created Artemis had been destroyed in a, in a terrible war 500 years earlier. So there is a hint that this society that was so smart and, and could create this wonderful ecosystem, this planet, had its own vulnerabilities. Yes. Now, what the people of Artemis believe, and in fact most of the external galaxy universe, if you go out into it, would say they believe, is that the reason Artemis was one of the starting points for this highly destructive war was because, by chance, a bunch of highly important people happened to be there when 
the they, they were essentially it was a great time to come and target the planet. So most people don't realize that there was actually reason for targeting Artemis in and of itself or herself. Though Griffin Dane, the archaeologist who's one of the main characters and who has sought out Artemis, wonders that in a war where planet-splitting bombs were not uncommon and other forms of really brutal sanitizing the entire surface of a planet of life, why the heck was Artemis preserved? Well, most people justify that by saying it was a wonderful exotic resort, it was a prize, it was like having one of the crown jewels, so why would you step on and ruin the crown jewel? But there are other reasons. And animals play a big role in all your stories, and I, I can tell your interest in animals isn't purely literary, because uh, I saw one of your, your short bios saying, when she's not writing or reading, she's likely being ordered around by a variety of small animals. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think I wrote that particular one when I had a animal. She since died and broke my heart, but um, she was born with birth defects and took care when she was really small, 24-7, when she got a little older, I was allowed to sleep through the night. But uh, definitely at the time I wrote that particular bio, my life was strongly dictated by the fact that Snowdrop had to be fed every two hours. Wow. And what kind of animal was Snowdrop? She was a guinea pig. I bought her mom, and unknown to me, and presumably to her mom, uh, she was pregnant, but she was a very young mother and could not effectively carry her babies. So she had two when she was only four months old, and Snowdrop had pretty severe birth defects, and her brother, Serenity, had uh, is fine, but he's small. He's still with me, and, and he's small for his age. So Snowdrop, when we about two weeks in, guinea pigs don't nurse very long. And about two weeks in, we realized that she was picking up her kibbles and then dropping them. And we started hand-feeding her, figuring that she would work her way through this problem. And to make a long and complicated story short, by the time we and her vet realized that she was never going to be able to feed herself, we were all far too attached to her to let her just starve to death. So... She thought being fed from a syringe was the normal way for a guinea pig to eat, so she would come, she would whistle to be fed and eat right out of a syringe. There was no force feeding. It was a collaborative effort and uh, lasted until she was about 22 months old and got an infection she couldn't beat, and we did have her euthanized then rather than have her suffer. Wow, it gives me insight into why and and how you have insight into the minds of animals because in Artemis Invaded and and in Artemis Awakening you have a number of animals who are psychically linked to the humans like uh, there's Sand Shadow who's a puma who's psychically mm-hmm. linked to Adara who's one of the main characters and I think you very effectively get into her mind and I was going to ask how when you think about how an animal thinks, and for instance, you you describe her really thinking not in words, but in images and senses, and I found that very convincing, and I just wonder how you go about creating a character that isn't human. Well, let's just 
to use Sand Shadow as an example, one of the first things I did was I read everything I could find about pumas and learned all sorts of interesting things. For example, one book, which included a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, said that they're actually very curious about humans. Uh, there were accounts of hunters or trappers who would find a puma trailing them with no attempt to attack them, just interested. What is this strange person doing? Pumas are also fascinating in that no one can seem to decide how to classify them. I've seen them classified as the largest of the small cats and the smallest of the large cats. And one of the dividing lines is that most large cats, lions, tigers, leopards, jaguars, don't purr. Pumas do. And so that's one of the things that uh, puts them in the, some, makes some people want to qualify them as small cats. Uh, in other cases, they very much fall into the qualification of the larger. So they're, they're fascinating because they straddle those worlds. Uh, they're very adaptable. They're American cats, but you can find them from the cold, snowy reaches of Canada down to the jungles of Central America and throughout uh, South America as well. And they also have more names than any other cat, and I think practically any other animal, partly because of their long ra large range. So picking puma was a challenge in and of itself. There are so many different potential names, but I narrowed down to that one uh, what are some as having the fewest complications. What are some of the other names? Well, of course, mountain lion, cougar. In South America, it's often called tigre or tiger. Right. Uh, catamount. Uh, cata, a lot of, any, any sort of old Western you've ever read that has, you know, cata something, that's a puma. Goodness, it's just a huge list. Wow. So, oh, panther, of course, panther. Ah, of course. And you also, I mean, you clearly enjoy not just writing about animal characters, but you have in Artemis, there are two other characters who are, their essence is left a bit of a mystery. There's the planet herself, or itself, mm -hmm. Ar Artemis, and there's some kind of neural network that is fungal, it sounds like. That is Artemis. Artemis, Artemis people keep putting in reviews and things that Artemis is an artificial intelligence. She's no more an artificial intelligence than the human-like creatures on the planet are. She's purely organic. She's a fungus-based neural network that I read some fascinating research that talked about the huge size of, uh, I don't want to get into the technicalities, but essentially the huge size of the underground networks of fungal organisms. And at that I was searching, I really did not want to do the old trope of there is a computer at the heart of this planet. Been there, done there, boring. I wanted a live planet, but having a reason for it, not just a uh, Gaia hypothesis. Well, the planet is a sentient being, but we're going to do hand wave, hand wave, hand wave. So I was doing a tour of UNM's medical library with a friend, and we came across a really cool display of various types of mushrooms and the things they can do. For example, do you know there's a mushroom 
that can eat disposable diapers? No. Yeah. Isn't that great? It is great. It's great for landfills. Wouldn't it? I mean, somebody really should get into this. They can, they can do all sorts of things. They can live in a wide variety of ecosystems from the coldest to the hottest. They're very versatile and flexible, and they're wide-ranging. And one mycologist, uh, who I actually quote and give credit to in Artemis Awakening, spoke of the myco- mycological networks being like the planet's neural network. And I said, bingo, that's it. What if when Artemis was terraformed, they terraformed into it a neural network built out of various kinds of fungi? So Artemis is not an artificial intelligence, and well, or is no more an artificial intelligence than the genetically engineered humans or animals are. Artemis is a living organism that just happens to have a planet-sized body. Right, and you and you make that very clear. I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't confused by that at all. I yeah. understood that she. I know it's just very it's it's so frustrating to me when I read a review and it says, you know, the artificial intelligence, and I know people are automatically thinking yet another story with Val the great computer at the heart of the planet, or Pern has a great computer at the heart of the planet, or or or. No, this is something far cooler, far more exciting to me. And and what's very uh, another interesting dimension to, and I want to say her, but I yes. guess there's no. I mean, but does that make sense in the context of talking about a, a a fungal neural network? I mean, there's no he or she, even though it seems. Yes, but but uh, because of um, her being assigned a, a feminine name, Artemis, and the identification with the goddess of the hunt, which is of course what the planet was ostensibly designed for. People usually use the female pronoun when talking about her. Okay, okay. Well, I see. Well, so she she has a, quite a range of emotion, too. I mean, I suppose mm-hmm. artificial intelligence could as well, but there's something very... I mean, was it? A, did you find it a challenge to uh, distinguish her consciousness in a way that was something we could relate to and yet was uniquely, you know, a planet-sized consciousness? I mean, was, was that kind of hard to, or was it a challenge? It really was a challenge, and that's one reason why at the end of the chapters there are the verse interludes, because I felt that it was a way to get across Artemis's thought blocks without, or, or experience blocks without just making it a planet that talks. So I deliberately used the poetry form as a means of trying to get across that Artemis is capable of communicating with humans and animals, but is other and otherwise. And just for our readers, I mean, you've kind of explained it, but at the end of uh, chapters, they're very short uh, little verses that, you know, it doesn't take long to figure out that this is Artemis trying to, you know, make sense of of herself as she has become, um, her consciousness has been restored because for all these hundreds of years since the war, when so much was destroyed, she um, she was basically dormant. Yes, and she's afraid because of that. If we were to write a prequel to the book, Artemis would not be afraid in the same way, but she knows that she can be made to essentially not be. 
And so she's afraid of that happening. And she's afraid of being isolated again. And that, to me, made her a more interesting character than some all-powerful planetary entity. And um, there's another character, too. And now that, to me, seems more likely to be an artificial intelligence. And yet, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely clear. And that's um, Leto. Yeah. Maybe you could just say a little bit about, I mean, again, I'm going to say her, because I guess that's a, in, the, in the Greek myth, that, that would be Artemis's mother, if I'm not mistaken. So, Correct. So another female yeah. Uh, name. Yes, and it's at this point in the, the series, it is left unclear as to exactly how she's constructed, but she definitely ties in to the uh, computer-type machinery in the complex that she's in charge of. But the question is to whether she is some form of hybrid electronic and otherwise intelligence or is full, is simply a complicated computer artificial intelligence designed to run a specific facility has not been revealed in the book. So I will be suitably coy. Well, very good. And and you also use a lot of nonverbal forms of communication in the in the book, which I, I thought, you know, was interesting. I mean, there's sort of a, a, a there are ways that people that communicate between themselves and animals. There are people communicating differently between each other. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered about your uh, your use of that and why you thought of that, uh, this nonverbal communication. Well, it comes from a whole bunch of things. In the Firekeeper books, Firekeeper basically speaks whatever language it is that the animals she knows speak. I did not want to do that again. Most of the time, that allowed me the ease of transcribing conversations between Firekeeper and Blind Seer as if they were just talking because they speak the same language. As far as Firekeeper is concerned, that's her first language, even though it actually isn't. Um, but it, she doesn't remember speaking another language. She's been living with the wolves since she was about five. But in the case of Artemis, these people and animals have been genetically engineered to be able to communicate with each other. Yet I did not want to lose the sense that the animals were animals and had a different way of perceiving their environment. So while I will use sentences and not break everything down into descriptions, I try and interweave the two so it doesn't get lost. And then the telepathic communication between humans, which at this point, the only characters that that's been explored to in any depth is Griffin and Terrell. That's a whole nother thing because humans do tend to think in sentences, even when we're thinking to ourselves. You know, we think, okay, Jane, I've got to turn on the water for the pasta, you know, at 10 minutes to 6. I don't think in impulses. So for the two of them, communication in words will be more natural, but it's a very new bond, and both of them are a bit bit shy of it. You mentioned the interludes, and indeed in Artemis Invaded, all the interludes are from Artemis's perspective alone. But they're a little more complicated in Artemis Awakening because I wanted to provide a hint that Griffin and Terrell's 
telepathic link was waking up well before either of them realized it. There are all sorts of little hints in there for people who like to look for these things, like Adara commenting that the, both of them keep talking in their sleep, and both of them look at her and say, you know, nobody I've ever shared a bed with has ever told me I talk in my sleep, and her going, well, you know, I've heard you. And one of the interludes that begins with, um, let me see, something like, I'd rather not dream of you, I'd rather dream of her, uh, is actually Terrell sort of resisting the fact that he's becoming more and more aware that he has this link to, to Griffin. And it's not really what he wants, but at the same time, it's part of what he was created to be, is as a factotum, to be a person who can bridge between the Signor who come from off-planet and the, uh, the native population. He's, he's essentially been created, though he doesn't know it, to be an, em an emergency communication link so that if his ancestors in his profession were out there with a group of people doing super primitive, no communication, cross-country skiing expedition, let's say, and someone breaks a leg and is going to die, in that case, the factotum's dormant telepathy would come alive so that they could call in help. So it's not until Griffin is in danger of his life that Terrell's dormant ability comes all the way online, and he and Griffin start communicating in dreams. But in Artemis Invaded, which you read, the two of them are aware of this bond, but neither of them are completely comfortable with the idea of someone else being able to communicate with them. So except for a little bit in dreams, they are still keeping, keeping it at a distance. I have to say, and you said you don't want to be too directive or pedantic in your writing and to send a message about, you know, let, let the reader figure out what they, uh, you know, the messages, if there are any, about technological advancement or, or climate change, that sort of thing. And I found it fascinating that although many of the characters who have these very unique skills arose out of genetic engineering, which sort of implicitly in our world today, I mean, or explicitly really, kind of genetic, you know, one thinks of Aryans and Nazis and breeding humans yeah. and in a really horrible way. But in, in, in most respects, as, as best I can tell from all the characters, all the attributes that have been bred into them have, um, in general, positive function in, in the story. Yeah, well, they were, they were created... Since you haven't read the first book, you missed the creation story. But they were essentially created to be self-sufficient, ideal servants. And so, of course, their genetically engineered abilities would be all positive. Because have you ever read 18th or 19th, early 19th century travel logs of people going to Egypt where they talk about the children with flies clustering around their eyes, or rampant blindness, no. dysentery, etc. I can imagine, though, but no, I haven't yeah. read those. Well, so it occurred to me that if, if you were of a technological level, that you could take a, a dead planet and turn it into exactly what you wanted, why wouldn't you make certain that the inhabitants of the planet 
we're not going to be sneezing, snorting, disgusting. You would make them healthier. You would make them stronger. You would make them more useful. And there are a few hints dropped, but again, I haven't had a chance to really get into it, that in the years since the major event that the people of Artemis call the slaughter of the Signor and death of machines, the people of Artemis have continued to evolve, and that, in fact, if the senior were to come back, they might be a little bit surprised at what has happened. But there's only so much I can do in a short book, and uh, lecturing is not one of the things that uh, readers want. So tell me what's in store. How many more books is it? Is it one more or more than that? Uh, Tor is being extremely coy about whether there will be more books in the series. And in your imagination, have you mapped out future books? Oh, yes, I have. Um, If I was able to do the next book, one of the things that would be further dealt with is the planet itself. At the end of Artemis, I don't invaded. I don't want to provide too many spoilers. But at the end of Artemis invaded, the invading force is effectively ousted. And the next book would not be, and now more of the same. Instead, Adara and her companions and uh, a larger cast of characters from Artemis would start trying to learn more about Artemis so that if the next round of trouble comes, they'd be better prepared to deal with it. Because in the first book, Griffin crash lands, and really the focus is, you know, wait a minute, the Signors still exist after all this time, and in Griffin's case, I can't believe it, I've found my life's goal, and now I'm stuck. And in the second book, when they discover Leto and begin to realize that Artemis is a whole lot more complicated, and then the invaders, who, small spoiler here, uh, Griffin accidentally led there, show up, they realize that they need to know more about their planet and its capacities, or they will forever be dealing with the next problem, and eventually they're going to lose. So I would love to write some books that, that put them in a more active, uh, exploratory mode with the awareness that when next time trouble shows up, trouble is going to be met with a little bit more than... Uh, oh my goodness, what the heck are you? Uh, And the last interlude in the book sort of foreshadows one of the things I wanted to explore. So right now it's in abeyance. You're not working on the the next book, and yet it lives in your head, clearly. Uh, (laughs) So what happens to to those characters? I mean, in your, your, uh, you know, psychically, are they pushed to the side in the back of your mind, or do you dream about them, or do you... I live in a very complicated head. Um, even when I was writing Artemis Invaded, I was side-by-side working on a project with David Weber, our second collaborative novel, Tree Cat Wars. So I'm very good at being sort of functionally schizophrenic. And uh, so I think a lot about the people on Artemis and what they are doing and would be doing, and I would find it very easy to pick up again. And one thing that I've promised myself I would do is if there would be a delay between the publication of book two and book three, that I would write some short stories so that the readership would have something in between. I've had a lot of questions about 
uh, things like Terrell, who's oh, not a point-of-view character, but a very important character in the books, and what was it like for him growing up and his training. So, yeah, there's a lot running around, and I'd love to be playing with it, but, uh, but unfortunately the publishing climate is a little bit, uh, a little bit gray. Well, maybe listeners can help it along by, by going out and buying themselves a copy of Artemis Awakening and Artemis Invaded. Yes, they can, actually they can help, and even if they're not in a position, I mean, I was a poor grad student once, and I completely understand that not everyone can pony up for a book. Um, if they go to the library, well, at least talk about the book, post reviews, Post something on your blog. And what's 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 your website or what's your blog address? The easiest thing would be to go to my website, which is www.janelinskold.com, and there are links there to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, all those charming social media things that uh, are so much a part of a writer's life these days. We've got some cute artwork up. One of my friends... My current banner on my Facebook page is a picture of Sand Shadow building sandcastles at the seashore. Ah, beautiful. Perfect. <laughs> it's really great, actually. I just love it. And another fan just sent in a picture of Terrell, sort of a stylized depiction inspired by the first major fight in uh, the first book. So, um, yeah, if people want to do art as long as, you know, they're they're okay with us posting it would be happy to see it and i just want i'm I'm in love with this world and i want people to feel free to get involved with it well fantastic and and thank you for getting involved with uh with the podcast today i appreciate your you're taking the time to uh well i had fun talking with you rob and of course i'm given my my animal pro uh animal interests talking to someone named wolf is always a particular delight Excellent. Thank you. Yes. Well, I appreciate your appreciating my name. <laughs> I thought it was a, a bit fortuitous. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being a guest uh, on the podcast. I've been speaking with Jane Linskold, author of Artemis Awakening and Artemis Invaded, among her 25 novels. I'm Rob Wolf. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Follow the podcast on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and listen to past interviews at our website at newbooksinsciencefiction.com. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron. And the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And if you've been liking these interviews, please leave a review on iTunes so others will be more likely to find us. And thanks so much for your support. Bye for now.